Hello, we are here for another episode of The Music Prophet on, and I'm ex- today's kind of exciting. We started off the show back in June with a mix of local legends. You know, we had Sean Barrett and Jen Holub and Sean Cosmo, people who have been really integral in the music community over the years. And I'm excited because today we have another one of those people who've been around to see a lot of things come and go and who's still helping younger musicians really get their start. So welcome, uh, Billy Bremheller, to the show. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks for doing this show. This is uh, a really awesome thing you're doing. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. It's been great to be able to have musicians come in the studio and just talk about music, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's one of the things I love about uh, keeping a foot in this game is uh, just uh, sharing all the uh, the wonderful world of music and how it makes you feel. I'm really curious with you how it's changed over the years, considering how much you've done, you know? Well, I might have a biased perfect. Uh, perspective because I come from the, the world of the 90s where it seemed like there was a kind of like a faster pace to it. Everything was uh, was analog and uh, that kind of forced everything to kind of go fast and get it done. But there was uh, probably uh, what felt like a kind of almost self-contained uh, kind of music economy where people do shows and all kinds of halls kind of shows almost every weekend and it seemed like the townhouse was band nights seven nights a week but uh, yeah that would translate into uh, a lot of recordings and uh, I just kind of think that throughput uh, you know just really became uh, just one center focus of my life for uh, felt like decades hmm I think in the changes these days, I mean, you have, uh, which is an awesome thing, the home recording, you know, it's, uh, it's much more accessible to people. And uh, if you have, uh, you know, there's a, I find there's a whole personal development aspect to, uh, to home recording because it can be pretty challenging. So you really have to, uh, there's a lot of discipline and sort of plowing through the, the learning curve. But uh yeah, I guess in the big, you know, the big shift would be from like analog to digital, which, uh, which uh, digital has a lot of, uh, a lot of benefits and, uh, I'm still a fan of a lot of the aspects of analog, but, mm-hmm. uh, they both have their own frustrations, but, uh, something I kind of look back fondly on the time of analog as well. Yeah, definitely. It reminds me of, uh, what the the Foo Fighters put out a documentary at one point when they went through eight analog c- studios in eight different cities to try to capture the essence of rock music during the '90s and late '80s, and it was and but it also covered a lot of the analog time period when they would have to cut the strips and glue them back into place to make sure that that sound would fit or with certain takes. Right. Yeah. Very right? very minimal editing compared to these days. You know, there's, there's kind of like uh, the classic sort of uh, digital recording joke uh, at the time when it was transitioning, it was uh, being in the control room, sort of pressing the talk back mic and saying, oh, that was horrible, come on in. It's like, the idea being that we're going to fix it all in here. <laughs> <laughs> but has that, has, that changed the way, did the, has that changed the way that you record? I think so. I think, uh, 
you know, there was a, a sense before that you really had to have everything together. You, I think, had more sort of pre-production, whereas these days you can kind of go in with something sort of semi-formed. Uh, and of course, the danger of that is now you've got such uh, limitless options. You know, before you'd have 16 tracks, and it's like we're gonna put. All right, these will be drums. We got two guitar tracks. We can put a tambourine on the solo track and then mm -hmm. sort, of, sort of map it all out and so you'd have a, a map of it and when that was filled in it was done but nowadays it's kind of like alright well we got 47 vocal tracks should we do a few more just to you know and then you kind of, kind of root through this stuff at the end you know and I think I think recordings tend to capture you know, as cliche as it sounds, like uh, the vibe of what was happening during the recording, and if that if that vibe is full of excitement, you know, the studio is full of excitement, things are moving. Uh, when you start getting, you know, bunch everyone's just like lamenting, sort of having to deal with stuff, and then you know, when you listen to the recording afterwards, sometimes I, I feel that that's kind of detected. I can look back on the recordings and. Uh, and right at that moment when you hit play, there's either like this, this sort of spark that intrigues you, uh, you know, or sometimes it's like, well, it sounds good, but uh, it's not really that interesting. I don't know if I'm going to listen to it again for a while. Right, because when, once you hit take 47 of the same vocal chorus, it's not really, there's no excitement anymore. It's just robotic almost. Yeah, although, you know, some people kind of have that workflow and it works for them because I guess from a certain sense it might be part of the development you might have something that you're actually you know developing um, a vocal characteristic in the studio whereas you know I think beforehand in the uh, in the days before that option you might have to like you know, the band would have to sound pretty much how you'd want the record to sound in the end, live kind of thing, or very close to it. Right, because you can't go back. You know, you can't really, you don't have the budget nor the time to really just experiment as much in the studio. Yeah, yeah. No. And that was the thing with the old days, too. It's like you kind of did it, moved on, did it, moved on. Nowadays, uh, you know, and that's a big, one of the big benefits of digital is you have this sort of total recall situation. It's like, all right, we've sort of worked on it, we're going to, we're going to open up the session two weeks from now, you know, do a few more tweaks and stuff. Uh, whereas, you know, two weeks later in the old days, uh, bands will be working on their next record because you can't just, you know, if you go back to the studio, it's going to take a whole day to set up all of the outboard gear and the, the mixing board to even try to be close to how it sounded two weeks ago. It's, uh, yeah. So that was, that was kind of an ordeal that, uh, you know, one of the things that made it a lot more stressful back in those days too, because if you had a band, you know, we're almost finished uh, with something over a weekend, but you know, Monday morning there's something else coming in, and the whole board and everything's going to be reset, you know, and it's like, oh, you just got oh, two more songs to mix, you know, and everybody'd be sort of stretched out with arms crossed the uh, the board and uh, going till the, the wee hours just because. If we don't get it done tonight, it's it's going to be a big ordeal to set it up again. 
to get back the settings and yeah, yeah that'd be I can't even imagine especially as a sound tech at that point like that'd be be horrendous knowing that you have one song left on a 12 track album and you have to come back for one afternoon yeah reset the entire board yeah just for three and a half minutes yeah but you know life is like that that's what I, sometimes there's un, unrealistic you know, you know and I think you can really burn yourself out if you just kind of like you know keep uh, you know, an unrealistic sense of uh, you know expectations and try to live not that I always did that but uh, you know, it is a and there's a sense of guilt if you don't right so can you take us through what a producer does because I mean a lot of the listeners are musicians already but for anyone that's not I feel like there's that barrier of what you see a producer doing versus what they're actually doing you know there's that gap yeah uh, and that's uh, I've been trying to answer that question for uh, a long time now and it seems like there's a pretty wide range of producers uh, you know, and some of them just have a really good sense of, you know, I mean, imagine what that next project's going to sound like for the band, oh, excuse me. And then they kind of almost, uh, you know, put all the pieces together that's going to create that. And whenever something doesn't fit that, you know, they, they fix it. So they're not, uh, and then there's some that are just completely hands-on. Uh, and I think that's probably more the trend these days where, you know, they'll have certain understandings of recorded sound and they'll know certain things that work and, uh, and won't work and they'll have a, they're ultimately, they're, the, they're where, where the buck stops, the bottom line for the band. So if it, it lands in their lap, if it, uh, if, if something's not working, everybody's looking to the producer to fix it. Because they, they're controlling the sound, the output, all the levels, it's... Yeah, uh, well, in the case of, uh, I think of, oh, what's, what's that big gruff guy with the beard, uh, big famous producer? Rick Rubin? Rubin, yeah. So I kind of follow his engineer, you know, on YouTube and stuff. So he's kind of like the main guy that he seems to work with. But it seems that Rick's kind of style is a little bit more of a taking taking the work in progress and from what I remember kind of reading about, you know, just putting some headphones on and lying back on the studio couch and listening and then kind of yay or neighing and saying, you know, this didn't like this verse. So he's not really too involved in the, in the recording, you know, I, sh I shouldn't say I really don't know, but that was the impression that I got that he was just a much more, much more of the abstract picture while his engineer was, yeah, it sort of decided the mics and right so can we can we jump into that a bit more actually of the relationship between the engineer and the producer then because there would be that balance of maybe you control a lot of the mics as the producer and you're taught you control where the sound goes but in other situations like Rick Rubin yeah he would just be saying this was great but there's parts that were just can we turn down this and touch something else up, right? Yeah, yeah. So he'd kind of have the last say on the, you know, the final balances of the mix, and uh, 
I think they tend to work together quite a bit, the engineer and producer, and there's quite a bit of overlap. Um, there's the mo most recent story that I, I read, or no, it wasn't a story, I think it was one of the, uh, I wish I could remember his names, but uh, his YouTube videos, and he's talking about, let's touch it back to the analog digital, why he's mixing in the box these days, uh, meaning the computer as opposed to on the big recording console. And uh, he showed some mixes to Rick, and Rick said, what, uh, what time did you mix these? He's like, oh, I don't know, it was like 3 in the afternoon or something. And, and Rick says, well, don't mix that time. The grid's kind of crappy. The electricity's not so good. You know, the rails aren't getting the voltage they need to like sound good. So he's like, well, yeah, I've, all right, I'm out of this analog world. I'm going, I want a computer where it's going to sound the same every time. That's hilarious how time made a difference. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, and it's true. I, I got myself just like a little, you know, uh, sort of like a power bar with one of those little voltage meters and kind of hovers between, you know, 115 and 120. But I'd notice I would get more, uh, as it drops closer to 115, it seems like there'd be more buzzes and hums in the sound than, you know, than when it's up to 120. So hmm, That's interesting. It's, uh, yeah, something I wasn't really fully aware of uh, as much as I am now until like the past year or so, but I would notice like even playing, you know, in different venues when you plug in your amp and it's, it just seemed, I kind of blamed a lot on, on the room at the time, but you're like, man, this, this amp feels so plinky today, you know, it's like. Normally, I would have tons of gain, and the note would kind of sing forever. It's like, huh. This is a, one of those weird phenomena that that may explain it. Maybe, right? Because I suppose the sound that's coming through, it's if there isn't the voltage that's able to carry it as much as you hope. Yeah, no, I think we kind of take these things for granted. So, anyway, you know, my buddy was having problems with his, with his console as well, where he just kind of did these weird your crashes and it's like, oh, I wonder if that's the voltage thing because that tends to you know, sort of computer-based electronics when it doesn't get enough. It's, so the more I'm looking into that is... How much time do you spend researching audio technique and sound technique and even the technical side of things? That's a good question. It is definitely my hobby as well. So I think, uh, I think everybody has their thing that they love to look into and find all the, you know, look through a microscope and there's some sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, some sort of abstract metaphor to life in this thing for them. So sound is my thing. So I, I'd probably say, you know, a on lot. average, yeah, a good few hours a day if you're even it all out probably. And where, do you find that you have, like, which, is there certain websites that you go to, or is it a lot of YouTube searching? Yes, yeah, uh, probably mostly YouTube. Um, yeah, far away YouTube. There's a couple other sites. Uh, there's a really good, uh, used to be called lynda.com. It's kind of more of a teaching you know, for schools and stuff like that, but they have like a really 
it's a lot of, you, you can sort of find this, a lot of similar stuff on YouTube, but this was just kind of nicely packaged and, mm -hmm. you know, with that. Yeah. But yeah, can't knock YouTube. Yeah, there's a lot. And even with lynda.com or Udemy, there's oh, a lot okay. of websites like yeah. that too, where it's, it's great courses. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. The amount of information out there uh, that, you know, any, anybody these days that wanted to take something and run with it, they can, uh, uh, there's, there's one guy, this, uh, I, I forget the YouTube channel, but I just watched this interview with him and he just jumped into the recording game. He's been doing it for about a year and he just kind of big fan of music, love these metal bands. And, uh, he basically, I don't think it was so much through YouTube. I think that was a, that was a part of it, but like within a year, he was uh, recording some of his favorite bands and had some pretty high profiles, just for the fact that he was so into it. And he would kind of his method was he would do some recording, and then as he was mixing, he sort of play it back. And you know, three seconds in, if something didn't sound right to him, he would just keep working on it till he could get like four seconds in, you know, until five seconds in, until everything sort of sounded right to him. Which, which I gotta say, I really, I really like that idea, and that's one of the sort of ideas that I try to focus on. Uh, that seems to seems to be a separation between, say, you know, maybe engineers and users. Is that kind of vision where if you know what you're looking for and you have something in your mind's eye that you're trying to achieve, you can just kind of keep refining it and shaping it towards that. Where I, I've been in that state before where you just kind of, uh, you know, this is always a guitar amp, I don't know, I'll put a 57 on that because that's kind of the thing you do. You know, you kind of do the things that you're supposed to do and then you hit the record button and I find, you know, people who, uh, even myself, when I've had the, like, no, no, I got to have a vision for this and I sort of, one thing I used to do too a lot with clients is uh, get them to bring in sort of like some some reference materials. Like imagine your dream billing at a you know at a show. What are, what are the three other bands you're going to be playing with? Right. What does it sound like? And you know try to get a sense at least uh, you know get their uh, get their vision of what a great drum sound is. You think hmm. there's a lot of similar characteristics. You've done you've worked with a lot of different artists in a lot of different genres. You mentioned that you can't believe that you did it, but do you surprise yourself sometimes? Uh, yeah, totally. Actually, so much comes like flooding back when I kind of hear that. It's like almost remember, uh, like remember the sound in that room. Like that that studio had a particularly good drum room. It's like oh, oh the drums had this nice big sort of pow to them. And uh, but the thing about this one is, I remember it being like pretty fast. Like they were like a live band. They sort of you know, set up and, uh, and I, I don't remember a whole lot of finessing about the sound. It's, you know, it's kind of like, I think there's a, probably the first thing uh, I've recorded with these guys. You know, I had a general idea of sort of like what they would sound like, but yeah, it just seems like what kind of, what kind of came out when I listen to it now. It's like, oh my God, it's, Say it's hard to believe that I was part of this. It's just so awesome.
are there certain artists that you've worked with that I mean these they are like that but are there other names or bands that you've worked with that you still can't believe that you had that opportunity uh so yeah like I said I was kind of going through last night looking for some stuff to play and it was uh it was kind of It was it was very difficult because I felt that way about so much of the stuff. So yeah, it's really hard to pick just two songs, but yeah, it's really nice like working with all these people, and you know, and they uh, and again, I'm you know kind of like uh, like in the studio, I don't have a lot of forceful opinions. I don't think I kind of tend to like uh, let's. Let's look up everything, see what happens, and then start, you know, kind of refining from there. And had my two cents, but uh, yeah, I found most most of the people that I work with, they would sort of have like a pretty good idea when they come in, uh, you know, and they'd want to try something. And uh, I'm pretty into trying different stuff. And uh, what would come across or come out of it was uh, something that I'd take like a little mental note of. Try to build these little mental tips and tricks book in the back of my mind that I seem to have forgotten so much by now. But and I imagine it would change too because you've done work with Mickey O'Brien, yeah, and Joey Karma. But at the same time, you've worked with people like Cassie Tires. So, like, I'm just fascinated by that contrast of the tips and tricks that you that were used by with rap, and then the tricks that you use with like Christian folk. You know, it's such a mix. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it probably uh, has quite quite a bit more overlap than people, you know, tend to think. But, you know, that's always the, uh, the danger of getting too much of a template of how you want to record stuff. It's like, oh, I know what my, you know, my snare is going to use this, this, and this. And, <clears throat> and uh, so I... Try to keep myself, uh, you know, that balance with a bit of an open slate too, so that I'm not, uh, you know, when there's new ideas that come across the uh, come across the plate, that I'm open to trying them. So. Yeah, and what are some of those? Like, what are some of those tricks that you'd have picked up over the years that well, seem to fit for both? Well, one of the things. These days, uh, and I, you know, and a lot of my students, I, t- I tend to go quite heavy on on distortion plugins. Or, you know, a lot of times there's amp amp simulators that go on a lot of certain tracks, and I think this this is probably related to my uh, sort of pining for analog days. But this tends to this, this sort of saturation tends to create a little bit more of that analog feel and stuff where um, you know digital in certain cases uh, you know can get I guess a bit of a sterile or by nature of it whole industry has been working to remove harmonic distortion out of the gear you know so that when they measure a signal going in the signal coming out kind of looks the same but you know that was that was not in the case a lot of this classic gear that's kind of sought after these days there's all kinds of funny, weird, quirky characteristics going on that, you know, and uh, a big part of that was this sort of saturation or uh, harmonic overtones, I guess they would call it. 
Because really, in the end, uh, especially when you look at a lot of the modern recording style, it is very clean and precise, and it almost sounds flawless. Yeah. Yeah, and it's... I find it's... You know, it might be a good analogy is... uh, is like when they came out with high-definition televisions, you get a lot of newscasters sort of complaining that, uh, okay, all oh, the wrinkles are showing and blemishes. And, you know, and when that stuff is super clear, it can kind of be distracting from you know, the message. In the case of the music, I, would, you know, I remember my, uh, my brother had this great old speaker, you know, an old stereo system, and, it's all very warm and fuzzy. You could, you mostly, mostly just made out the, the melody and the rhythm. A lot of the details, the subtle details, were much more subtle. And then I hear the same songs on, on my, on my dad's system, who had you know, very sort of top of the line, super crisp, clear speakers, and it was still stunning. Like, it was still pretty awesome. But I noticed I, the way I listened to it was different. I could just. I got in a little bit more of a hypnotic sort of zone connection to the music with my brother's stereo. My dad had all this sort of distraction every time, like, you know, the ride cymbal, this ding, 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 would sort of catch my attention. Everything was sort of jumping out at me. It was like the whole, the whole idea of the song, which was, uh, you know, it was, it was just kind of getting a little bit subdued by all these flashy details. That's interesting because that is you know, with certain genres that it's a trend. And I mean, in rap music, it's a thing where you use a lot of very subtle synth tones to fill those gaps. And then you layer all this, you layer the tones on top of each other. And it's, yeah, so that's, that's actually a really good point because when you listen to a lot of music, it's really common. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So when you, is that, but do you, does that change how you, record you know like when if a musician asks if if they ask for a lot of tiny little details and flashy things are you still okay with adding that oh for sure yeah uh and i and not not to take away that i that i am a fan of like this sort of subtle you know subtle changes to the music i find that's that's a big part of production too where you sort of you finesse you know, you finesse the listener. It's like, to kind of stick with that analogy, it's like, you know, MTV videos had to be, uh, you know, cut every six seconds because you've got to keep the, the viewer. So I noticed that just like a little subtle change in the mix that, you know, if you just bring up something just a touch, you know, after, you know, after the first four bars for the next four bars, it just, mm, just felt like there's a little bit more... So when people sort of build the layers like that, it doesn't, and I think that's probably the trick where it's like, if it, you know, in some cases, if it jumps out, it's too distracting. If it's a, a subtle layer thing, then you're just actually kind of drawing, you know, as long as it's keeping the listener sort of attuned to the right things. I'm curious how much your background of playing guitar has made, has made you really tune to that too. Yeah, it's hard to imagine being an engineer without being a musician because I think you really notice things, uh, you know, and even when I'm in the recording process, I kind of have to like air drum and air guitar, all the stuff that's going on, like to feel if a drum track is working, you know, you get that sense, can I, 
know, sort of rock out to it. Yeah, you have or to test it, it out does, first. does it feel like something's missing? Or you know. so, but uh, yeah, I, and I would, uh, you know, just kind of tinkering around at home. That's where I really get my because I know exactly the characteristics I like and I don't like. And, you know, even if I'm sort of like working with somebody else and their guitar sound, I might not be totally tuned in to then start describing something that they don't like about it. And, you know, I'd have to, I'd have to really get into the guitar mindset and almost try it out and get that feeling like, oh yeah, I see what the, I see what the issue is here. But in case where you're not uh, coming from that musician perspective, you might not appreciate how the the need for a fulfilling sound in your headphones kind of thing. And being able to replicate the riffs that the artist is trying to pull off or being able to play it and adding an element to it and saying, hey, what about this instead? That's kind of huge to making things become hands-on. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes that's where it kind of crosses over to the, uh, the engineer producer where it's like, oh, you know, that's that riff you're doing is you know sonically it's really hard to get that that low I mean you want something really punchy you know and that's the idea of that part like you know maybe we can try uh, we can try another layer to that an octave up so that you know because those frequencies will make a speaker pop those ones they're gonna get bogged down they're gonna muddy up the, so there's there's that kind of aspect to it do you still play as much, or do you find that as you, the more that you get busy recording, the less time you have to actually enjoy music as it is? Yeah, they're pretty intertwined for me, so I probably play just as much as I ever did. Yeah, it's it's pretty different style. It's uh, I seem to be doing really really long phases of things. So right now it's it's kind of just a. Uh, I'm into the really soft touch fingertip kind of thing. Hmm. Uh, it's one of the things I'm a huge Stones fan all my life, and I was like really enamored by you know Keith Richards' sound. He had all these, these really big, thick-sounding chords, and uh, and one of the kind of realizations that I came to is like, well, he's actually really he's got a really soft touch, and that's one of the ironic things in recording is that uh, a lot of times. A soft touch makes the bigger sound, and uh, you know it's almost like you know. Uh, and with you know drums, sometimes that's the case. Like if you you know sometimes the loudest sort of recorded snare sound that you can get, uh, especially with you know digital, you have an absolute zero that you can't really go above. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, you know, if you hit it really hard. You'll have a really sharp transient that hits that. But it's almost an undetectable, it, the transient happens so fast, it's that zero. The rest of the snare sound stays down kind of low. And if it's, if it's tapped and the transient's not that big of a spike, then you can just imagine the rest of the sound kind of, you kind of float it right up to that, to that zero. And uh, I mean, the volume wars aren't as big as they were in the 90s with CDs and everybody had to try and get something. But it's still there. You don't want your song on an iTunes playlist to feel weaker and quieter than the one previous, right? Right. And I like that you mentioned about the sound spike, because especially when it comes to audio editing, you love, you max out, you know, you can, 
you the, your sound is quite literally limited. Where it hits a certain point, it just cuts off. It just cuts off. So anything that's high that's high frequency. That's right. That's yeah, uh, got that big. Yeah, chop that spike out. Now you can float the rest of that sound right up to the zero, and then now it's screaming loud compared to everything else. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's kind of the concept of. Uh, I'm sure there's other aspects to it, but. So does that does that change for you? Do you go from soft touch to going to like maybe Paul McCartney style or the 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 Mick Jagger approach to playing? You know, like do you change up? Well, the thing that's weird and kind of ironic about it is, you know, if you want, obviously, if you have the drums that are like it's got to sound rocking like someone's bashing the hell out of it because that's what you emote and that's what you want to get across, you know. Uh, and that's where a lot of audio tools come in, like compressors. You can try and you know, you can you can do a lot of that stuff uh, in the processing. But I find you know, experimenting somewhere in between. There's an element of you know, almost sort of creating that effect. Where you're not actually say playing is hard but you want to create the illusion or almost create that sense that you are but uh yeah that's this is pretty probably far off into the into the weeds of things and that's kind of my thought du jour well the na of the year i'm just uh, kind of working on that working on that principle just demystifying sound is the uh that's that's the name of the game for me. With the bands you've talked about today, and also just even from the time that I've known you, it's interesting how a lot of them have gone to certain places. And, you know, whether whether it's been luck or just even happened to know the right people, a lot of the people you've, a lot of the artists worked with have moved on to bigger cities or have gone on to be signed or make do tours. So how how has that impacted your view on the studio and has it changed has it made you more humble or is it more of just cool this happened let's move forward yeah i think probably more the latter but uh it sort of brings up the the sort of sense and uh, i've heard a few people say oh man Sudbury feels like it's got this dome you know it's like it's it's a really sort of self and contained and so there's always that sort of like extra feels like a, a drive to sort of break out of it and uh, I don't know I think a lot of the uh, that was a pretty exciting era like 2004 we were just sort of talking about that on the break how we had uh, uh, you know Far From Heroes started uh, dealing with Sony and uh, it felt like we were just starting to you know make these connections to the bigger centers which uh and again, from a production standpoint, you kind of really feel like you're a bit on an island here. It's in the bigger centers, everyone's got a couple degrees of separation to somebody who's very prominent. So at least you have a sense that, you know, you know the way you're doing things is okay because that's the way, you know, Joe's uncle who works at this big studio does it. But here we're just very, uh, you know, kind of feels like it's sort of flying blind and you know, and then stuff starts happening, and it's uh, probably an extra sense of pride to it because of that. Yeah, there's there's definitely the element too that 
you know, there's there's artists who are just starting out, and then there's ones who who are accomplished, and there are they're all still playing playing the same bars even. Yeah, no, and that's a weird phenomenon that seems to happen. Uh, you know, when you read about stories about some of the, your your idols and stuff, they always have that story about the person in their hometown who, you know, was the one everybody thought was going to go on and they sort of stayed at a certain place. And that's, I guess, uh, that's one of the dangers of maybe getting too far too fast, maybe losing your humility. There's a, you know, probably need to recognize that and try and stay humble. Yeah, and even, who knows, maybe the cards just didn't play out right, or... Totally, yeah. And then yet, also, too, when you look at, um... When you look at the band that, uh... Pistol George Warren. You know, when you look at bands like that, where it's just... They just got busy, and things just didn't work, and then... Yeah. Yeah, that's that was a shame. I was so blown away every time I saw them. Mm-hmm. Uh, immaculate because everything was like so so awesome with those guys so I guess that's yeah and I and have you have you noticed is that a trend in Sudbury that it's once once bands start they fall off or it does it just come down to a lot of luck and who finds you and yeah again I think it feels like we're you know, we're not Toronto's Shelbyville, but you know, it's like when you're in Toronto and there's everybody's, there's a connection, there's a network, uh, you know, and everybody sort of goes through that system first. And when you have this, so like smaller towns, you know, again, I think the internet's kind of uh, democratized that quite a bit. It's definitely changed it a yeah. ton at this point. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's kind of a few challenges that way with, uh, with Sudbury, but Sudbury's got, you know, a lot of pretty amazing things about it too. Um, you know, having the townhouse all these years, uh, that's, in my mind, that's one of Canada's premier venues. Like, Well, considering the lineup, there, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's been a real, uh, it's been a real forum and, you know, developing ground for bands too, so. Yeah, and it's especially in cities like this, it's massive because there's some artists who do leave the city. And if they didn't have the townhouse or if you're in the metal, hard rock genre, the asylum, you, those stages are kind of where you learn. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's so nice to have those. I really uh, try and support those as much as I can. And I'm sweating a little bit because I feel guilty just talking about it. It's like, yeah, it's the problem with so much the comforts of entertainment available at home these days. Yeah, the the internet can remove that ability to actually go and support because it's it's all online, you know. Yeah, a lot of it. Yeah, yeah, we're, uh, we're shooting ourselves in the foot if we don't. So, but as kind of as a final sort of thing to wrap up, is that has the internet changed? Or has it played a role in the way that you find bands to work with or the way that they find you? I imagine it would be. I've Yeah, my uh, my plate's been sort of lightening up in that department over the years. 
so it's it's probably hasn't affected me as much, but I imagine again it's um, I think there's uh, I think that word sort of democratizing of uh, you know even all the elements of the music industry is probably fair to say. So, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, as much as it can be knocked, uh, the internet is a pretty pretty awesome thing. Yeah, and that's a thing. It's a good that is a good way to wrap it up. So thanks for coming. Thanks for coming on and sharing a couple of the artists that you've worked with. But it was it was nice. It was a good chat, and I think that. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it was awesome. good. Keep up the good work. That's it for the music profit. Thanks for listening, and you can find the other episodes on Spotify under the Music Profit Podcast, and we will see you next week.